We're in chapter four, where the Israeli army and the Philistine armies are going toe to toe. The Israelis were routed in the previous battle. We saw that in verse two, but then they regrouped and the elders of Israel decided that for the next battle, they're going to go to Shiloh and they're going to take the Holy Ark from Shiloh and they're going to take it with them into battle. And the battle is taking place in today's area of Rosh Ha'ayin or Petach Tikva, in that general area, the area what is called Sharon, which is in the heart of Israel. Now, what's Shmuel's part in this war? Well, the first verse of the chapter was a bit misleading. It gave one the impression that it was Shmuel who commanded them to go forth against the Philistines and lose. But actually, we see that after the Jews were routed in that first battle, where they lost 4,000 men, they returned to the camp. And Shmuel isn't mentioned at all. It's the Skanim, the elders, who are making the decisions here. So it's obvious that at this point, Shmuel isn't leading the Jewish people. And he's not the architect of this debacle against the Philistines. So it's the elders calling the shots, and they decide to take the ark out with them to the battlefield, as we mentioned. And we've seen this before. For instance, when Joshua went out to battle, outside the walls of Jericho, the Israeli army took the ark out with them. And just like in Jericho, we see that the people take that ark out here on their way to fight the Philistines, and they let out a shout and blow trumpets. It says, So the trumpets are blasting, the people are yelling, they're hoping it'll be a victory like in Jericho, maybe a little less miraculous, but they seem extremely motivated now with the Aaron with them. But in a way it works against them because we see that all it does is psych up the Philistines. We see the last three verses that we learned in Oleshiur, verses 7, 8, and 9. The Philistines are giving themselves a pep talk. And they know from the excitement that they're hearing in the Jewish camp. And they're shouting and vayariu, etc. That they're really going to have to man up. And that's what they do. So let's go to the next verse and see what happened in this war. And the Philistines fought. And Israel was smitten or Israel was beaten. And each man fled to his tent. And it was a tremendous blow. And 30,000 infantrymen fell that day. So the Jews had dealt a devastating blow here. 30,000 men, everybody scattered, going back to their tents. If you compare it to the previous battle, back in verse 2, there were 4,000 casualties and everybody went back to their camp. This time around, everyone's fleeing to their tents, scattered, it's all over. There's going to be no regrouping. There's going to be no comeback. This is a blow to the Jewish nation, what's going to be eventually called Chorban Shiloh, the destruction of Shiloh. We'll talk more about that later. Verse 11, and we see more tragedy here. Va'aron Elokim Nilkach, and the Ark of God was taken. That is, they captured the Ark that went out to battle. Ushnei B'nei Eli metu Chofni u'Pinchas. And the two sons of Eli, Chofni and Pinchas, were killed. And if we recall back in chapter 2, when the man of God comes to Eli and gives over a prophecy of doom against the house of Eli, he says at the end of that prophecy, he said, this is a sign, that in one day, Chafni and Pinchas are going to die. So we see that Ot right here playing itself out in this war against the Philistines. The next few verses now are going to deal with the Mivaser, the bearer of tidings. And in the Bible, we have a lot of verses dedicated to the Mavaser, the one who bears the tidings. Because in those days, people didn't know what was going on. They didn't have a radio to hear the news. And they're waiting anxiously to hear what happened. And we're going to have a whole bunch of verses coming up. How this man of Benjamin escapes the battle and Mavaser and bears the tidings of the tragedy of what happened in the battlefield. 
But before we get to that, we have to address the following question. Why did it not help the Jewish army when they brought the Holy Ark out with them to the battlefield? Why did they get trounced by the Philistines again? And the great commentator, the Malbim, answers it best in one sentence. They thought, when they took out that ark, they thought that that mighty ark would save them and would protect them from the hand of the Philistines. And the Malbim says, that is a flawed way of thinking to think that you can just take out the ark like some lucky charm and it's going to protect you in a war. Because the Brit Aron, the physical ark, is not the tachlis in and of itself, the Malbim says. What counts is that the Jews are fulfilling what's inside the ark. So that's what the Malbim is telling us. What's most important, the tachlis, you are supposed to observe what's in that ark, which is the Torah. The physical object of the ark itself, that's not the tachlit. That's not necessarily where it's at, but it's the idea behind the ark, which is what counts. If you're not doing the mitzvahs, then the ark loses its significance. It becomes a piece of wood. Now, how do we know the Jews were not observing the commandments? Well, notice after losing that first battle, the beginning of the chapter, when 4,000 Jews were slain and they went back to the camp, we didn't see any cheshbonefesh or self-introspection or contemplating where they might have gone wrong. What did they say? Look at those verses. Why did the Lord let us lose to the Philistines? As if they're tzaddikim. How could the Lord let us lose? But they're not tzaddikim. What do you mean, how could he let them lose? And just to show the difference between their reaction and the action of, let's say, Joshua, when his army lost the battle against the city of Ai, the first thing Joshua did was try to find out what sin might have caused it. But here, after the first loss in Shiloh, they don't do that. Anyway, how do we know that the Jews at this time were not observing God's law? Just one example, when Shmuel takes over the leadership of the Jewish people, in chapter 7, he's going to try to bring them to Tshuva. And he says, return to the Lord. Remove the foreign gods from your midst and worship the Lord. So we see from here the Jews had foreign gods. And Shmuel's telling the people, you know, throw that schmutz away. So they were not obeying God, but they wanted the ark to help them. Like some kind of skula or good luck charm. But like the Moblim said, that's not going to work for you if you're not doing what's written in that ark. Another really glaring example of this idea is when Moses broke the tablets, right? He broke the tablets, very famous episode. He descends from Mount Sinai with the tablets of the Ten Commandments, and he sees the children of Israel worshiping the golden calf. He smashes the tablets to the ground. So you can ask, how can Moshe do that? Imagine if you just threw your sitter to the ground like that, or a chumash, or even take it into the bathroom, some holy book. You never do that. And here, we're talking about the holiest thing you can imagine, the tablets that were given to Moses by God. And he throws them to the ground and smashes them. And know that God didn't punish Moses for this or object to it. The opposite. The Midrash gleans from the verse, Sheshavarta, God spoke to Moses afterwards and he said, the tablets, Sheshavarta, that you broke, the tablets that you broke, Chazal teach us that God said, Yashakoch Sheshavarta. That's what they glean from that you broke. Sheshavarta, Yashakoch Sheshavarta. It's a good thing that you broke it. Why? Because if the Jews are worshiping a golden calf, then those tablets, as holy as they may be intrinsically, they become stone, just like the ark becomes a hunk of wood, because it's like a body without a soul. And by the same token, the, the temple, the Beit HaMikdash too, when the Jews aren't doing the right thing, it also got destroyed, and sometimes it's termed Etzve Evan. God takes out his fury on Etzve Evan, 
on stone and wood, that the temple itself becomes reduced to stone and wood when the Jews are straying because all the spirituality has been taken out of it. And you can derive from all this the importance of having a neshama in your mitzvahs and not just being rote and making it mechanical. Because when everything's mechanical and by habit and there's no feeling behind it, there's no idea behind it, the mitzvah also becomes a body without a soul. And now we move on to verse 12, where the bad news of the war is going to have to be communicated to the people. And a man of Benjamin, from the tribe of Benjamin, he ran from the battlefield. And he came to Shiloh on that day. And his garments are torn. And earth upon his head. And those are signs of mourning that he's mourning for the victims and for the ark. Now, before this man of Binyamin delivers the tidings, which is going to take a whole bunch of verses, we get some interesting information from the sages regarding this Ish Binyamin, this man from the tribe of Binyamin. Rashi says, who's this Ish Binyamin? Zahaya Shaul. It was Saul who eventually became the first king of Israel, King Saul. Who grabbed the tablets from the hands of Goliath and fled. And that makes sense because it says in the verse that the man was from the tribe of Benjamin, which was a tiny tribe at that point. Much of the tribe had been wiped out in the story of the Pelegish Begiva, that's a story at the end of the book of Judges. And Saul, as we know, of course, was from the tribe of Benjamin. And it says later on that he was head and shoulders above everybody else in Ami Israel. I mean, he wasn't chosen by God for nothing to be the first king of Israel. He was a Gibor. And later on, when we are introduced to Saul in chapter 9, it's going to say, He was chosen and he was good. So we see that the Philistines got the ark. But Saul was able to retrieve the tablets from inside the ark. Now, there's an interesting discussion among the sages regarding how far Saul ran that day. Remember, he's not only the Mavaser in our story, the one who bears the tidings, but he wrestled with Goliath and rescued the tablets from the ark. Meaning, we lost the holy ark that day, but salvaged the tablets of the Ten Commandments. So the sages discuss, how far did Saul run that day? Rabbi Levi says that Saul went 60 kilometers that day. How is that? Well, he was in the battlefield. He heard that the ark was captured, and then he confronted Goliath and grabbed the tablets from the ark. And so from the battlefield in the Rosh Hayan area, he ran back to Shiloh, and that's about 60 kilometers. That's the first opinion. Rabbi Simon said that Saul ran 120 kilometers that day. How's that? Well, when the war started, he was in Shiloh. And then he heard that the ark was captured with the tablets inside. And so he ran from Shiloh to Rosh Ayan, grabbed the tablets from Goliath, and returned back to Shiloh. That's 120 kilometers. And the Chachamim say that Saul went 180 kilometers that day. How did they figure that? Well, on that day, he was in the battlefield. And then he fled to Shiloh with everybody else when they lost the war. And then when he heard that the ark with the tablets inside were captured, he went back to the battlefield and wrestled the tablets away from Goliath. Now that's kind of a weird machloket. What's going on there? What does it matter how far he ran? And by the way, the route he took to go from Shiloh to Rosh Ayin, he probably passed by Tapuach on Road 5. But getting back to the question, what does it matter if he went 60 kilometers, 120 kilometers, 180 kilometers? Well, maybe we can try to understand the meaning of this Midrash from a similar argument that we see in the Haggadah of Pesach. There's a discussion in the Haggadah between the rabbis, how many plagues were there in Egypt? You thought there were just 10 plagues, huh? But if you look at the Haggadah, we have three different opinions. Rabbi Yossi the Galilean says that there were actually 10 plagues on the ground and another 50 at the sea. 
Rabbi Eliezer says that Egypt was smitten with 40 plagues and at the sea they were smitten with 200 plagues. And how they came to these calculations, you could see it inside the Haggadah. And then Rabbi Akiba makes his own calculations and he says, the fact is Egypt was smitten with 50 plagues, not 40, not 10, but 50. And at the sea they were smitten with 250 plagues. So again, what does it matter how many plagues they were smitten with? So Rabbi Benjamin Kahana, in his commentary on the Haggadah, explains that each and every of these plagues was a sanctification of God's name. It was directed against Paro and the Egyptians who said they don't know Hashem, and now they're going to know Hashem through these plagues. So every plague is more Yidiyat Hashem. Each plague gives more knowledge of Hashem, more Kiddush Hashem. It's sanctifying God's name more and more. So we see here in this argument is each rabbi is saying, no, I say there was even more Kiddush Hashem. You say there were 10, I say there were 40 plagues. And Rabbi Akiva deduced the most amount of plagues in this argument here, 50 in Egypt and 250 on the sea. Because Rabbi Akiva, out of everybody else, was the most sensitive to the desecration of God's name. He wanted more Kiddush Hashem, more Makot, more plagues. After all, he was the great rebel, the arms bearer of Shimon Bar Kokhva, who loathed with all his soul the Roman occupation and the Chilul Hashem it was causing. He was the one the Romans hated and tortured. And so the point is that each rabbi here is trying to magnify the Kiddush Hashem by multiplying the number of plagues. So along the same lines, maybe in our discussion about Saul, how far he ran is that each rabbi is trying to magnify his misirut nefesh, his great self-sacrifice. You think he only went 60 kilometers? He went 120 kilometers. No, he went 180 kilometers to emphasize the great misirut nefesh, the self-sacrifice that Saul had to salvage the tablets from the Holy Ark. Now, Rabbi Kahana, he asks a question about what Saul did. After all, what Saul did was incredibly dangerous. He could have gotten himself killed wrestling with Goliath over the tablets in the ark. What happened to be Kuch Nefesh? So the rabbi answers that the capturing of the ark was a chilul Hashem. It was a desecration of God's name. And whenever there's a desecration of God's name, then one doesn't make an accounting if it's dangerous or not dangerous. You have to go out and rectify that Chilul Hashem, that desecration of God's name. And that's why Saul was most senefish for this. He was willing to really put himself on the line. And the rabbi adds, but the minute he succeeded in getting those tablets, he fled. So it's no mitzvah to get yourself killed. He mitigated somewhat the Chilul Hashem by salvaging the tablets. And then he got the heck out of there. Okay, verse 13, and here the man of Binyamin, we said it was Saul, he's going to be the Mavaser, he's going to bear the tidings of what happened. Vayavo, and he came, that is, the Mavaser came, Saul came. And Eli was sitting on the chair beside the road, waiting anxiously. He wants to know what's going to happen. He's waiting to hear the results of this war. And the verse continues, why was he anxious? He was anxious for the Ark of God. So that's what he was worried about. So the verse is explicitly telling us that he wasn't worried about his kids. He was worrying about the Ark of God that had been taken out to battle. And the Ralbach says about that, we see here Eli's tremendous piety. Even though his two sons were doomed to die, he's only worried about the Ark. And that's the sign of a leader for Klal Yisrael. He puts the national interest above his personal interest. At the end of the chapter, we're going to see the same thing with his daughter-in-law, but we'll get to that later. Now, just one word about the Hebrew that's being used here. It says that Eli was sitting by the chair and he was mitzapeh. So we said mitzapeh was, he was anxiously waiting. And that's a possible translation because mitzapeh comes from the word sfiyah, expectation, to expect, litzapot. So he's expecting, he's waiting anxiously. But from the root litzapot is also litzpot or tzofeh, which means to watch. A tatspit is a watchtower. 
So the verse can easily be understood that he's he's on the watchtower waiting for the Mavaser to give the outcome of the war. And of course, you could just put the whole thing together. Mitzapeh could be he's anxiously waiting and he's watching from the Tatspit to know the outcome of this war. Let's now continue inside verse 13. We didn't finish the verse. And the man came to tell the city about what happened. We're talking about the Mivaser, the man of Benjamin, Saul. He came to tell the city what happened. And the whole city cried out. Verse 14. And Eli heard the sound of the cry. He heard the people moaning and crying from the bad news. And he said, What is that noise out there? And the man hurried and he arrived at Eli to tell him. So you can ask, how did the Mavaser, the bearer of the tidings, how did he miss Eli? Eli was at the gate. He should have came to Eli first, not last. So it could be that the bearer of the tidings went through a different gate and he came to Eli at the end. Or maybe he came through the gate Eli was waiting on, but wanted to avoid him because he knew the news would just crush him and he couldn't face it. So first he went to everybody else. And then he came to Eli. So the bearer of the news, the Mivaser, is about to bear some really bad tidings to Eli, who seems to be the last one to know. And the rest of the chapter is going to be about the reaction of Eli and his family to this news. And we'll get into that in our next shiur.